I do invite you to turn your Bibles to John chapter 1, and I want to turn there and look, look at a text of Scripture with you this morning. John 1. It's a simple message, right? Profound message, but simple. Even children can sing it so well, so clearly. This Christmas season, we want to remind you of of the true meaning of Christmas. And uh, the way I've decided to do that today for you through preaching would be to to give you a proclamation uh, from a memoir uh, from uh, one of the closest friends to Jesus who lived in this world. As we come to John chapter 1, we come to this chapter in this gospel, we come to a gospel written by Jesus' closest friend, closest earthly friend. The author of this gospel keeps identifying himself throughout as the beloved disciple, or the disciple that Jesus loved. This author has spent much time with Christ. He only spent much time with Christ. He was part of the inner circle of the disciples, part of the inner three one point in the gospel, we see that this disciple who wrote this gospel was leaning on the shoulders or breast of Jesus at the Last Supper. And when Jesus is hanging on the cross, totally incapacitated, unable to care for his mother Mary, he looks at the author of this book and he gives to the author of this book the task of caring for his mother since he no longer could. No doubt, Jesus... And the author of this gospel, John, enjoyed a close relationship. The gospel that we're going to read from today, however, it it does not represent the immediate perspective of Jesus' closest friend and disciple. Instead, what you have in the gospel of John is you have uh, something that was produced 50 years after Jesus departed to be with his Father in heaven. I'm sure these 50 years for John allowed him much time to meditate upon the importance and the significance of Jesus' mission in this world. I think that's one of the reasons why this gospel paints such a grand portrait of Jesus. 50 years to think about his significance. So for instance, in the gospel, we'll find that everything that Jesus did was better Everything that he touched was better. Everything that he brought was better than what he replaced. So, for instance, we see early in the gospel that the old temple in Jerusalem has been replaced by a new temple. A temple not made of stone and wood and gold, but a temple made of human flesh. The new temple of his body, Jesus Christ. We learn in chapter 4 that the worship that was performed at Jerusalem, this this holy city Jerusalem, and Gerizim for the Samaritans is now replaced by Jesus, by something that's better. Uh, He calls it worship in spirit and in truth. The same chapter we see that Jacob's well or physical water is replaced with living water, John says. An instance where John is, where Jesus is providing for the physical needs of people. They needed manna and bread. He gives them manna and bread, but he then says that he replaces this with the bread of life. In John chapter 9, there was a man blind, uh, born blind in his, in his 
uh, inability to see. But then along comes Jesus and not only cares for the physical blindness of the man, but his spiritual blindness as well. And Jesus identifies himself to this man as the light of the world. See, everything that Jesus did, from John's perspective, 50 years later, everything that Jesus did or provided was so much better than anything he had before. In John chapter 11, we read of the death of Lazarus. Then along comes Jesus, and death is replaced by the resurrection and the life. And John records all of these things. He says in his purpose statement later in the book, he says, all of these things are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing you might have life through his name. It's a grand portrait, 50 years of meditation. But it's interesting to me the way he starts the, this gospel. John starts the gospel in a way not like the other gospels as well. John starts his gospel with an 18-verse prologue or introduction to Jesus where he uses some of the loftiest thoughts and language that he had at his, ability, at his disposal to portray Jesus. This prologue has become so important to Christianity, it forms one of the, the, the most important or foundational texts on the doctrine of Christ. John 1, verses 1 through 8, are, it's a section that's so packed that sometimes it takes preachers five or six sermons to make it the whole way through it. Sometimes it takes theologians five or six chapters to write about it, or entire books. So we're going to look a little bit, a little glimpse of what John describes or how he introduces Jesus in this text. This morning, we're only going to look at two verses but I want to read the whole thing to you. Look at John 1, verse 1. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light, the true light which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. Who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out. 
This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The one, the the only God who's at the Father's side, he has made him known. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to this grand prologue, the thing that church councils and theologians and preachers have meditated and explored, I pray, Father, that as we look at just a small piece of this, that you would give us a grander more loftier view of the baby that was born in a manger. May we get a a grander, loftier view of Jesus Christ and his incarnation, his becoming flesh. Uh, In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As we come to this text, uh, again, I I already already gave the disclaimer, uh, five or six sermons, don't worry, I'm not going to do that today. You can't do everything in the text here. However, what I want to do is something very specific. Uh, In two separate verses, John refers to Jesus as the Word. The Word. These two verses, verses 1 and 14, John emphasizes three characteristics of, of Jesus, of his identity. And so as we start into this text this morning, that's my only goal Look at verse 1, verse 14, but to leave dumbfounded at the miracle that occurred at the birth of Jesus. And so we look at these three characteristics. First, John describes his his Lord and Master as, he says, he is pre-existent. That's how I describe verse 1. He is pre-existent. It says, uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. This text starts with a very familiar phrase to those who know the Bible. As you're reading this, you come across those words, in the beginning, come from two words in in the original, and arche, which uh, come as well from the very first verse of the Old Testament Scripture, book of Genesis, Genesis 1-1, and the Greek version of that starts the exact same way, in the beginning. Maybe you've read this before. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And so as John is writing the beginning of his gospel, he uses the same phrase. In that Old Testament text, in Genesis, this phrase speaks of the time before the creation of the universe. Before the world, all things were created, everything animate and inanimate. So he's speaking in Genesis of a time before the earth was formed, in the beginning. As we come to this New Testament text, accordingly then, the word in our New Testament text was in the beginning... It was in existence before time, and it goes back to eternity past with God. So whatever the word is, it existed way back in the beginning, before any of us or any of this creation was here. So that leaves us with the question, who or what is the word, right? The, The word that's described here. In the beginning was the word. You may notice even in your English version, it's capitalized, it's capital W. What's what's going on? What does this mean? Well, the word translated, the word, or the words, uh, can be translated as well, the message 
or the expression. What we find in this text is the word, the message or the expression, was found right alongside of God. The text says, the word was with the God. If you're translating this from Greek, you know, it's, it's quite simple, actually. It's a very simple translation, but it's a profound, deep thought. <laughs> okay, it's like simple. Matter of fact, Greek, scholars, Greek students, when they come to, to, to a text in the New Testament, they need somewhere to start. They start in John because it's just such simple Greek. I mean, it's the word was with the God, but what is the word? Sometimes the word, this, this word that's used here, is used in the Old Testament of the word or the message or the expression of God. What he would reveal about himself, the way he revealed himself to creation through spoken words and written words. That's the word of God. We tell children, I hear parents occasionally tell children to this day, uh, when they need to express themselves, use your words. There's no hit. Use your words. It's a way to express self. So, in the scriptures, the word word, logos, captures the different ways that God expresses himself to this world through creation and revelation. And so one scholar by the name of D.A. Carson helps us with John 1.1 and what's going on here. He writes this way, D.A. Carson says, John applies it, the word logos, word, to Christ as a title to God's ultimate self-disclosure the person of his own son. Carson calls it God's ultimate self-disclosure. God's word is the way he revealed himself to creation. And the ultimate form of this was the word, the son. We know this is in reference to Jesus if we keep reading in the text. We get down to verse 14 and the same phrase is used there. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Okay, we're starting to figure out what the word is, right? We just can't make an assumption that's Jesus. For a little bit later on in verse 17, he tells us specifically it's Jesus Christ. He's the word. He's the way God expressed himself, John is saying here in this text. We also know that this is Jesus from another book that John wrote. I ask you to turn over in your Bibles to the last book of the New Testament, Revelation. Revelation. And I want to look at verses 11 through 13 for you there. You can turn ahead in your Bible to Revelation. John, the disciple of Jesus, the beloved disciple, not only wrote the Gospel of John, he wrote the Revelation of John. Okay, so same author a little different book and intention, as John is writing about the second coming of Jesus Christ, I want you to see how he describes how Jesus will one day return, okay? This is going to be really cool. Revelation 19, verse 11. Revelation 19, 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it, called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war his eyes are like a flame of fire on his head are many diadems or crowns and he has a name written that no one knows but himself he's clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God 
The armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, which which to strike down the nations. Wonder what that sharp sword is. It comes from his mouth. We know from other texts, this is the word of God. The word of God. So as we think of the identity of the, the word, the logos, back in John's gospel, he makes it clear in others, other gospels that he is referring here, or other books, he's referring to Jesus. Jesus, the word of God, God's expression of himself. The text says, you go back to John 1, 1 then, this expression of himself, the text says initially, was with God in the beginning. The time before creation. Men and women, this is a significant testimony from John who knew him well, knew him best, under the inspiration of the Spirit to speak to the pre-existence or the eternality of the Word. He was with God in the beginning. Like how one old English scholar by the name of F.F. Bruce Describes this passage, F.F. F. Bruce, great student of scripture, since been died and he's gone home to be with the Lord, never earned a PhD, had a master of arts, and that was enough for him. He knew this word very well. Listen to what he says about this text. He said, so when heaven and earth were created, there was the word of God already existing in close association with the Father. He says this, listen this, no matter how far back we may try to push our imagination, we can never reach a point at which we could say of the divine word as Arius did, a false teacher, there was once when he was not. The Arian misunderstanding or false teaching about the son is there was once a time when he did not exist. But men and women, that cannot be true in John's gospel. No, in the beginning, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And so first way John describes him to us is Jesus was preexistent. It's eternal. But that's not enough. Just to see Jesus as an eternal preexistent being. It's at the end of verse 1. He gives us this, this... This other very important phrase when he says that he was God. It says, and the word, John 1, 1, and the word was God. In this statement, we learn that Jesus did not just exist alongside of God in eternity past, but that he shares his essence or being with him. He shares the very nature of God. I say, you know, when you put these two phrases, it is kind of difficult to, to fully comprehend what is going on. He was, he was with God, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It's like, I, when I hear those two things with my small little, little brain, I think, like, which is it? Was he with God, or was he God? But men and women, it's phrases like these that have driven us as a church to an orthodox understanding of things like the Trinity, the Trinity, where we see that there is one God, one in essence or being, with three persons. He was with God. Three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. 
in one being. So as we go through this text, we have these defenses of the deity of Jesus Christ. This, this is not easy, right? John 1.1 1, 1 has drawn the attention of many councils and theologians throughout the, uh, out the years. It's not easy, but can I just say this? It is clear. It is clear in this text. He was with God, and he was God. And so we can't backtrack from either one of those things. Now, if someone comes to you and suggests that John 1.1 is translated in the wrong way, or they suggest that these things don't make sense, and you need to, to take, you know, go away from one or the other one of them, they come to this text and they say things like, well, it means he was a God. Or he was like God or something like that. And we should explain it just can't go that way. Can't go that way. This text is translated very well. He was with God. The word was God. And all, all you really have to do is keep reading the text. If anyone ever comes to your door and they tell you that Jesus Christ was not God, all you have to do is keep reading in your English Bible. That's all you got to do. Go down to verse 3. Okay? Verse 3. You just say, all things were made through him. The word. All things. You emphasize that. All things that were created were made through Jesus, the Son. And if that's not enough for them, right, and they say, well, all things doesn't really mean all things. It means everything except him. Then you say, keep reading, because John makes this so clear. I love his repetition. And without him was not anything made that was made. It's like nothing was made without God. Everything that has life and breath was created through Jesus Christ. He is not a created being at all. He is the eternal, pre-existent, creative God. That's the story we proclaim at, the, at uh, this time of the year. And so, it's just amazing. The Word we see his preexistence. We, we see the fact that he's God. But there's one more part I want you to see, verse 14. That's not all we learn about the word in the prologue. As, as, as we skip ahead to verse 14, we come to what one scholar called the most important verse, one of the most important verses in the entire Bible. Look at verse 14. And the word. Well, we understand the word. Preexistent, eternal God, creative God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. It's in this verse that we see the incarnation of Jesus. Not only is he preexistent and is he God, he is flesh. He's flesh. So the preexistent divine creative logos or word became incarnate. God expresses himself at this time by having the Son take on human flesh, human nature, and he truly was a human being. 
I loved how John describes this. You know, John, the way John introduces his epistles, he's got uh, epistles later on, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. In 1st John, the very first chapter, he talks about the beginning again. He talks about the word, and then he makes a statement. He talks about the word of life. He says, he says that he not only saw him with his eyes, but he says, the one that our hands have handled, the word of life. And John is emphasizing in these great texts the humanity of Jesus. He was real human flesh. I not only saw him, I felt him. I felt him. We come to this text. In verse 14, there are other ways that John describes the significance of this moment when the word becomes flesh. He says that at this moment, the word dwelt among us, or he dwelt among us, which could be translated, he tented among us. These words come from one verb in the original would speak of pitching tents. And this, this verb, we don't have the time to trace it throughout all the Old Testament. It has a long history, a rich history in the Old Testament. For in the Old Testament, the noun form of this word was used of the tabernacle itself. So you can translate, he tabernacled among us. Of course, the tabernacle in the Old Testament would, would, could, could be called the tent of meeting, the place that God, through his determined efforts, decided to meet with his people despite their sin. He creates his tabernacle, and from time to time, his glory, his significance would come and would, would be there in the midst of his people Israel in the tabernacle. Then the text in John says that in his dwelling among us, that we have seen his glory. As I look at these two, these two words side by side, this verb, uh, he dwelt among us, tabernacled among us, and glory. I'm reminded of many Old Testament texts where you see those words working in tandem. Tabernacle and glory. For instance, we won't turn there, but I'll read one of them to you. Exodus 40, verse 34. I just want you to listen. Exodus 40, 34. It says, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord, of Yahweh, filled the tabernacle. I think what John is doing here is he's, he's kind of alluding back to the Old Testament scriptures as he's referring to what happened when God became flesh. He dwelled among us. He put his tabernacle among us. And we all saw glory. All saw glory. In the Old Testament, God was determined to dwell with men, so he created a tabernacle and filled it with his glory. In the New Testament, God was determined to dwell with men, so he sent the word to dwell among men that we might see glory again. The glory of the Father, the, the ultimate self-expression of the Father, the word becomes flesh. One commentator described it this way. He says, hence the glory of God once restricted to the tabernacle is now visible in Christ. Once was in the tabernacle. Now it's in Christ. And John says next that the glory that humanity saw in Jesus' incarnation was a particular type of glory. He says it's the glory as of the only Son from the Father full of grace and truth. The word only could be translated one and only or unique. It's the glory of the one and only Son of the Father. And it's the glory that is full of grace and truth. 
say, well, what does full mean? I say it means we're dealing with a really, really big resource here. When you have the eternal, pre-existent God become flesh as your container, you can hold a lot of grace and truth. And if we had time, we could continue to go through the text and just see that grace upon grace that comes through Jesus Christ. His grace overflows, it never runs out, and his glory in no way compromises truth. This is God made flesh so that those who believe in him might become the children of God. Men and women, as we think about this Christmas, it's my strong encouragement to you to tell others about Jesus. Tell others about him. Don't just look for opportunities. Don't wait for all the planets to line up, all the stars to somehow get in line. Take the opportunity. Don't look for some sort of analogy in sports or politics that might give you a you know, back way into the gospel. Just simply ask people, do you mind if I take 10 minutes to tell you what, what the most important part about Christmas and my life is this Christmas? Do you mind if I do that? Then I'll give you an hour to talk about whatever's important to you. And then say, it all started before the world existed. He was pre-existent. He was God. And he became flesh. He became flesh so that he might die. He became flesh so that nails could be pounded through his hands and his feet. He became flesh so that people could beat him with a whip became flesh so that a sword could go into his side. God became flesh so that his blood could be poured out to pay the sacrifice for your sin, the punishment for your sin, if you would just believe in him. Men and women, what we have in the incarnation is the most profound miracle the world has ever seen pre-existent, creative God becomes a baby to save the world. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for what we have perceived and learned from John's introduction to Jesus. In these two verses, he helps us understand a bit more about the identity of Jesus. He is eternal. He is God. And he is flesh. Lord, as we celebrate this Christmas season, I pray that the wonder that we sang about, that was talked about already, would not go away. I pray, dear Father, around our tables during the Christmas season, we would make the choice to take the opportunity to share this message that can change any life. Or give us boldness 
Give us zeal and give us joy as we proclaim this message. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.